maybe God has answered our prayer in the midst and uh, has uh, allowed that to work. So those who are maybe frustrated online and now maybe watching, uh, hopefully it'll, it'll you can stick around with us as we go forward here. Um, so uh, we are in the book of Revelation chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, please open to that. We'll have the, the scripture on this on the screen, but we'll be reading the entire chapter. That's a lot of verses to kind of follow along on there, and so um, you may want to use your Bible. Revelation chapter 2. Before I start, I wanted to um, quickly say something. I, last Sunday, <laughs> kind of embarrassed by it, but I, uh, I kind of slipped... Uh, the famous H-E double hockey stick word. And uh, so I want to apologize to anyone here. Um, I didn't, uh, uh, when I wrote it down, I didn't even think about it, uh, which is probably not good. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I apologize for that, for saying that. It's revelation. It just makes you crazy. And so you say crazy things. Um, and so uh, apologize for that. It won't happen again. Um, so we're in the uh, book of Revelations, chapter 2. And I'm going to start here in the beginning. And um, hopefully I don't mispronounce any of these cities. Um, I was been practicing all week. Uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. We walk among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and... For you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in uh, Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander of those who say that you're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of, of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have seen some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your later works exceeded the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into the great tribulation. Unless they repent of their works, I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. To the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. 
Only hold fast what you have, you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the, to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, as we come here, Lord, to, to hear and to hear your word spoken to us and taught to us, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us through your word, uh, challenge us, convict us through your word, recognizing that this letter is a, is a is letter written by you to us, your churches, your people, Cor- uh, encouraging us, but also challenging us and rebuking us in areas that we need to see our sin, that you would move us to repentance, Lord. You would bring to our hearts how we are consistent or that we have fallen in the same way these four churches have. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to you. Lord, we pray, Lord, for those who are not with us, who are still at home or are traveling, we pray for them as well. pray that you would watch over them, keep people safe. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So my uh, so the introduction the, the title of this uh, sermon um, is an epistle the epistle of Christ Jesus to all churches the epistle of Christ Jesus to all churches uh, kind of a, a main idea is in the age between the resurrection and the return of Christ the church must remain faithful under the lordship of Christ the church must remain faithful in times of peace and persecution. To Christ's mission, Christ's teachings, and Christ's rule. What I kind of maybe shorten that a little bit into just a few words is, Hey church, remain faithful to Christ or he will judge you swiftly. Remain faithful to Christ or he will judge you swiftly. My uh, father is a great man. Uh, you maybe all have met Tony. He's a, he's a good guy. I love him to death. And uh, he's that one to give a lot of gifts. Right? He's not a gift giver. He's very much a, a servant part. He serves his kids very well. He serves my, my mother very well. He serves the people who work for him very well. He's just not much of a gift giver, right? Um, and so my father hasn't, I can't like say all the things that my father has given me, right? Other than like food and a place to live uh, for most of my life. And that's a, that's a huge gift, right? Um, but the one gift that my father ever gave me was a little book. And um, he picked it up because he said, I thought you'd like it. And that was, that's a great gift. It's something that it's not celebrating my birthday. It's not celebrating Christmas. It's not something that I deserve. He's just giving me a gift. He was, at, it was, he was somewhere, and he saw something. He recognized that it's something that I would want, and he bought it for me. And this is a little book called George Washington's Farewell Address. He bought this at Mount Vernon in Virginia. And I've read it from time to time. I'll pick it up and read it. It's really short. Uh, it doesn't take very long to read it. But if you... Um, if you know about this book, if you've watched, if you've listened to the music Hamilton, there's the, the farewell address is like kind of the song between him and Hamilton. They talk about the one last goodbye, right? Um, so it's kind of this farewell address, one last time, right? And what does he want? What does he tell Hamilton he wants him to do? He wants him to write a letter to the nation to tell them that some things that are important, things that he thinks will be important as the country grows up without Washington's leadership, right? I mean, Washington was really the de facto leader, the, 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 the one single voice for the nation for 45 years. And so now he leaves the scene, right? He's not going to be president anymore. And so he wants to tell the country something important so that it would outlive the founding father. It will outlive Washington and Hamilton and Jefferson. And he talks about he doesn't want the, the nation to fight against each other, right? He doesn't want partisan fighting. And he talks about his farewell address that he doesn't want the country to have political parties, right? He doesn't want the nation fracturing into parties and these political parties that are trying to dominate the other and trying to, to, to basically control the country with its own agenda and its own, its own issues. Basically pitting the, the, the parties against each other, right? If Washington were to come back today, what would he think about the, the response to that uh, uh, teaching or advice? I think you'd be pretty shocked how divisive our country is, how how divided we are. And our division may have some legitimate reasons for those divisions, but we have fractured in two major parties and 
maybe multiple parties, that we don't really feel like a unified country anymore. And this sermon is not about America. I'm not giving it a political address or anything like that. But I wanted to show that, you know, someone, a leader of our country, presenting a, 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 a letter or a farewell address for his people, and he is wanting them to remember important things and, and, and keep some, some important um, uh, uh, teachings in, in mind that they don't fracture, they don't separate, that it would outlive Washington and the Founding Fathers. And so here we have Jesus in Revelation 2. He's presenting some teaching, some letters, some, a word of, of, of challenge, a word of encouragement, a word of warning to his churches, these seven churches in Asia. We're going to talk about the first four of these churches. While these pastoral letters, I mentioned last week that Revelation really is a pastoral letter. It's an epistle by Christ to the churches through John. But literally, Jesus is pastoring his church. Christ is the king over the churches, and he also is shepherds over the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, right? This ends every one of these letters. It's, he, he says, listen to the words of the angels to the churches. Not just to that one single church. But to the churches, that this letter really is given to all churches in the first century and to us as well. That's why the importance of between the resurrection and the return of Jesus, that's the age that we live in. So what is provided in these letters is also speaking to us as his church. Similar structure to all of these letters uh, is that Jesus will state what is true about himself. He will encourage the churches. He will rebuke the churches. He will challenge the churches. And then he will give them hope. That's kind of a final word as he concludes one of the letters to the churches. Really, what we want to, the way that we want to look at this is that Jesus takes the pulpit, right? He is preaching to his churches, right? He is encouraging them. He is challenging them. He's rebuking them. He's calling them to repentance and confession. And then he's ending the, 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 the sermon to his church with, hey, remember the promise. Remember this promise of eternal life. Remember the promise of your kingship. Remember that you are one of my people and that your status is a child of God, and that you're in his kingdom. So kind of the, the flow of this, of the thought in each letter is that Christ presents himself with certain attributes particularly suitable to the situation of each church. The situation, the particular problem is reviewed, maybe persecution, uh, having to endure suffering or affliction, encouragement to persevere in the face of conflict or repent in order to evolve, avoid judgment, calls for the, for the churches to respond by hearing the encouragement or exhortation, and on the basis of a positive response, Christ promised the inheritance of eternal life with him, an inheritance which is uniquely corresponds to his attributes or to the church's situation. It's so interesting that Jesus will start each letter talking about himself, and that attribute of himself is the main theme of the rest of that letter, and then ends responding or associating with that attribute, a promise to that church, if they respond properly to Christ's word. So the first kind of point here is that the one who walks in, the pres in their presence, the church's presence, and is the sovereign Lord, the great judge, and the majestic son of God, has something to say to his churches. The one who walks in their presence is the sovereign Lord, the great judge, and the majestic son of God. He has something to say to his churches. That's why it's an interesting that John, before he even gets into these letters, in chapter 1, describes the vision of Christ, or describes Jesus, right? And uses this very powerful language, right? Uh, language like his eyes of flaming fire. The ancient of days, his hair is white as wool or as snow. Talking about his, that his feet were like bronze. Talking about uh, what he wore, his robe. Out of his mouth, came a, a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun 
shining in full strength. And what does John do? He responds in fear, right? He falls down dead almost to what he sees of Jesus. This is what we, this is who's speaking to these churches. So remember that as you read through this, as you follow along, go back to chapter 1, 12 through 16. This is who's speaking. The risen Lord, the risen Christ is the one speaking to these churches and also speaking to us as well as a church in his, in his kingdom, right? We are a part of his kingdom. So he starts off here in, in, in the, the, first, uh, um, the first church that he, he talks to. Is a church may abandon Christ's mission. A church may abandon Christ's mission. So this is the first subpoint. The church may abandon Christ's mission. The way I kind of like I've kind of looked at this is this. This is kind of the uh, the Calvinistic problem. Okay. Now realize this that I am. Uh, this is a Calvinistic church, and so when I say that, I'm I'm kind of tongue in cheeking this a little bit. But this is some of the issues. A lot of churches that come from our kind of reform background. I think this is the same issue that, that the Ephesus church had. We also have this. So let me state that on the front end here. Um, so it says here that when he writes to the church here, the church in Ephesus, he says, uh, the word of him, he's talking of Christ, the word of Christ, the risen Lord, who holds the seven stars in his right hand. It speaks of his authority, right? His authority over the church. The seven stars represent the, the, the church, all the churches. So he has authority, he has power over the church, he's the head of the church. We know this from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, that he is the head of the church, and the church is his body. It says he holds in his right hand the seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands. It says he walks, they talk about his presence, that Christ's presence is always with his church. Meaning that Christ is at present with us today. He's with our church here. He's with every church. He is the risen Lord, the, the, the vision that we get in the end of chapter 1 of 12 through 16. That risen Christ, the one who's, whose voice is like the sound of many raging waters, is in the presence of his church. And so he speaks. He said, this is the one speaking to the church in Ephesus. Christ has authority. He walks among his church. The church in Ephesus is dedicated to proper teaching. He says, I know your works. I know your toils. I know all the, how you've patiently endured. I know that you've not tolerated evil. You've tested those who claim to be apostles and found them to be false. That you've bared up my name. You have not grown weary. What do we know about Ephesus? Ephesus is a very important church. In the New Testament, it's a very important church in the early, in the early parts of the, the growth of the church. We know that Paul spent significant time in Ephesus, discipling those that were in Ephesus. We know he wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. We know that John also ministered in Ephesus the lighter part of his life before he was sent to Patmos, before he sent, he wrote this, this, this revelation, this letter. He uh, was in Ephesus until he was arrested and exiled. We know that Ephesus is very close to Patmos, about 60 miles off the coast. And so this letter, this entire book written uh, by John is probably given first, probably went to Ephesus before it got spread around the rest of the churches around the world. And so Ephesus was a very important church. It was a very significant church in the early church. And they were a church, you could tell, that had been pastored by Paul and pastored by John. Right? They were very, uh, very, uh, they, they held doctrine very strongly. They endured. They uh, they were they had good works, right? They responded to that teaching, right? They 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 lived a, a fairly holy life. They did good works. They didn't tolerate evil. They had someone who came into their midst who preached anything that taught or preached anything that was against scripture. They immediately addressed it. Immediately addressed it. But that's not what Jesus Jesus doesn't end there, does he? He has more to say to this church. He says that they have abandoned the gospel. They've abandoned their first love. That word abandoned has a lot of different meanings, but one of those meanings is basically divorce themselves. The, the Greek word that we get, the Greek word for divorce is the same word used here for abandonment. They divorce themselves from their first love. 
That's a pretty significant uh, 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 rebuke. What is Jesus talking about? What, what, is, what does it mean that they've abandoned their first love? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 24, verses 12 through 14, about this potential possibility for his followers. So Matthew 24, verses 12 through 14. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel, this gospel, this gospel of the kingdom, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and the end will come. As lawlessness increased, the love of many will grow cold. Really, the, the issue is, is their love of the gospel had gone cold. They held to the proper doctrine. They understood scripture well. They recognized heresy, and they recognized false teaching, and they recognized it well and didn't tolerate it. But they didn't have any joy. They had forgotten the gospel. They had forgotten God's work in their lives. And it says they lacked dependence on the Holy Spirit. And even the issue of lampstands that he mentions a little bit later the lampstands represented the spirit, right? The spirit uh, 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 oversight and, and, and work in the church. But the light of the lampstand is the church, like the light of the world, that we are to be the light of the world, that we, as we as to are, have the gospel and have been affected by the gospel are to make known the gospel to the world. The church is a light to the world, a city on a hill. That when people see the church, they should recognize that we are creatures of the gospel. That we are institutions of the gospel. Agents of the gospel. That Christ Jesus died on the cross for sinners and conquered sin and death. And that through Christ alone, we are redeemed. That's where our identity and our status comes from. It's through the work of Christ. They have divorced themselves from the gospel. They have abandoned the gospel. It seems odd that a church that held so strongly to proper teachings and doctrine could lose the or abandon the gospel or divorce themselves from the gospel. It's like a husband and wife on the day of their marriage. And then after 10 years of marriage, one or both replaces the other with a different love. That's what Jesus is saying is that they've replaced the gospel with something else. They found a new love, and that love is doctrinal purity. That seems so odd to us. How could that be an issue? When you get so focused on eternal matters, you get so focused on making sure uh, everything is, is, is perfectly in order from a doctrinal standpoint that you lose your understanding of the gospel and how it changes sinners and that you are a sinner in need of the gospel and that the world needs to hear the gospel you abandon the gospel you divorce yourself from the gospel they had become a seminary a theological society and then stopped being a church and churches can do that they can forget to be a church and actually just be a walking talking uh, theological society that gives out books reads books talks about books Talks about articles, talks about conferences, but actually forget to actually make the gospel known to the world. And many of our fellow Reformed churches do that. They forget the gospel. They, they talk about the gospel. They talk, read books about the gospel. They read articles about the gospel. They listen to podcasts about the gospel, but they don't make the gospel known. And by doing that, they've abandoned the gospel. And you know when a church is going this direction based off the climate of the church, the culture of the church. What does Jesus say to his disciples? He says that they will know me by, you, they will know me by your love for one another, right? Not by all the things that you get right on the pulpit or all the things you get right in your songs or all the things you get right on your website. They will know me by your love for one another. And I'm not saying that doctrine is not important, right? We, we, here at our church, here at Redeemer, we talk about doctrine a lot. It's in our songs. It's everywhere. The emphasis, though, if you overemphasize that and you forget to make known the gospel, what typically happens to you is you don't love one another and you don't love the lost. You fail to love. You fail to encourage. 
The typical priority is discouragement and criticism and not love and encouragement. And you fail to live out the gospel itself. And that's what's happened in this church. They are commanded by their Savior and Lord who walks in their midst to repent and remember the gospel. Do you remember before you knew Christ? Do you remember before you knew Christ? Do you remember the, you know, who you are and what you did? Do you remember that? Have you forgotten who you were before you were a Christian? That's what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. Have you forgotten? Like, do you not remember what you did at first? Do you remember how you felt when you trusted the gospel? Do you remember when you heard the gospel and trusted it? Like, do you, can you go back right now as you sit here? Can you go back to that moment when you received the gospel and trusted it and, were, and believed it and were saved? Can you go back to your baptism? Can you go back to that moment when you recognize that you're now a follower of Christ? And how it makes you feel? How it impacts you? Jesus says, I'm coming to you. And I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus is very, very, very serious about what this church has done. He gives them an ultimatum. He says, I'm going to come. And he's not talking about his end time coming. He said, I'm going to come and I'm going to unchurch you. I'm going to make you not be a church anymore. And you're like, what? How can this church who, knew, who, who spoke everything right, who knew the doctrine, who knew every, every theology that you were supposed to know, they are the ones that Jesus says, I'm going to unchurch you? We are creatures of the gospel, and if we cease to be lights of the gospel, we have no purpose to Christ. If the church responds to Christ's warning, the church will be blessed, right? You will be in the, Jesus says that um, here in Revelation 2 at the end here. He talks about if they respond, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, which is talking about God's presence, right? God's presence will be amongst you. He will, walk, he will continue to walk with you if you respond, if you repent. If you remember again your first love, if you remember the gospel and start living out the gospel and start making the gospel known to the world. If you cease to do that, if you say, well, we're not, we're, we, we are a good church, we, do, we preach the right way, we, we sing the right way, we pray the right way, we, that will never happen to us. Well, obviously, you're not recognizing the sin and you're missed and Jesus will judge. He will judge you just as swiftly as he judges the church full of heresy and sexuality and false teaching. That's hard for us to think sometimes. It's hard for us to recognize how that, that Jesus can put those two different churches on the same, same level. But he does here. The second church is he talks about the church in Smyrna. A church may endure extreme suffering. This is point number two. A church may endure extreme suffering. I love how Jesus starts here. Remember, he, he starts every one of these letters with an attribute of God himself, and this becomes the major theme of the rest of the letter. That if we forget the gospel, Jesus is not with us. If we remember the gospel, live out the gospel, Christ is with us. The second one is, is that Christ holds, I mean, Christ is, uh, is the first and the last who died and came to life. He's talking about God's, Christ's sovereignty over time and space. Christ is Lord. He is the Lord of the events of history. He is the Lord over everything. He conquered sin and death, right? He Not only is he, is he above time, but he even conquers death. He died and came to life. And why this is important for this church in Smyrna? This church, Jesus has nothing to say to them in, in a sense of rebuke. He encourages them, but he recognizes their situation. He recognizes the, the affliction that they're living in. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty. But says, even in affliction, the church is wealthy and secure in Christ. He says, this church is little. This church is poor. But what really matters? What really matters is not how big the church is or how big its budget is, right? That it has a basketball gym, that it has a cafe or any of those type of things that bigger churches have. That's not important, is it? That is not where we as a church are driving to, that we would be a church that's bigger and have a bigger parking lot and have 
have a bigger budget. That's not what we're aspiring towards. What really matters is faithfulness to Christ. Do you have the gospel, right? Who cares if you have a Tesla? Who cares if you have a Ferrari? Who cares? Jesus doesn't care. What matters is, is your faithfulness to him. He doesn't care if you're CEO of a company. He doesn't care. He cares if you are faithful to him. And this church, while it's small and poor and afflicted, is faithful to Christ. And therefore, it's rich. He says, I know that you've been slandered by the Jews. Basically, the Jews are saying these Christians uh, are not a part of them, and therefore they should be persecuted by the Romans for not worshiping Caesar and not worshiping the pagan uh, uh, gods. And so the Jews kind of righted out the Christians, and so the Christians were being persecuted. The church in Smyrna was being persecuted by the, by the words of the Jews. The Jews were telling the Roman authorities that these Christians aren't Jewish and therefore should be persecuted for their religion. And Jesus calls these Jews a synagogue of Satan, which basically tells you who God, Christ is saying are his real people. It's not the Jews. His real people are the church and those in the church. He tells them, don't be afraid. He says, I understand that you're going through affliction. I understand that you're going through extreme suffering. I understand that you're going through tribulation. I understand that you're poor. I understand that you're weak. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the persecution. Why? In order that, it's so that he can test them through the suffering. Jesus is in control of everything. He's even in control of their persecution. And that God is using this suffering to test and strengthen his church. I mean, think about that for a second as you kind of stop your writing and think about your, your week, your month, your year. Do you believe that what happens in your life is about God's purposes? Do you believe that? Or do you believe life is simply being in the right place at the right time, luck, and happenstance? We use that language, don't we, all the time? Man, bad luck. I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Man, if I had just been this and that, if it was this place or that place— and this never would have happened to me. I would have been doing this. I'd be doing that. We use that language all the time. Christians use that language all the time. Basically saying that our lives are chaos. That it's all about being in the right place at the right time or knowing the right person. I know some of you well. You've used that language to me when you talk about your own life. I, I realize this. We all do this. And what we're doing is, is we're saying is that God, we're afflicted. We go through struggles and God doesn't have any purpose with it. Well, that is against this understanding that God is Lord over everything. This, some of us, it's our presupposition. It may be your presupposition. You may, you would never directly admit it to friends at church, but it comes out in certain ways in different times that God really isn't in control of your life. That God really doesn't have any purpose in your life. And Jesus is encouraging, he's assuring this church in Smyrna through his sovereignty that he is First and last, he knows what's happening. Everything is happening for his purpose and will result in his accomplished will. Who is in control? Who knows the future? Who is worthy, worth dying for? He even says, don't be afraid. Endure to the end. Endure to, till death. Be faithful unto death, he says, and I will give you the crown of life. We, we, we preached through Ecclesiastes last summer. What was the common conclusion to all of those passages? That wealth, there's no point to wealth, it's all vanity. There's no point to, to wisdom, it's all vanity. There's no point to pleasure, it's all vanity, right? None of those things are worth dying for. Why? Because you can't take it with you. When you die, all your wealth goes to someone else. You can't take these things with you. Only Christ is worth dying for. That's why he says... You're going to be afflicted. You're going to, 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 be, uh, to go through tribulation. You're going to be thrown into prison for my name's sake. Don't be afraid. Endure till the end, till death. Be faithful till death. The one who's first and the last who, was de who died and is now alive is worthy of our death. He's worthy of our suffering. He's worthy of our affliction. Nothing else in this world can state that or claim that. You think about all the martyrs who died 
in the early church and during the Re Protestant Reformation, martyrs who, while they are dying, are praising Christ. How is that happening? Because they're recognizing that this is going for the glory of God, that God is purposeful even in the sorrow and the suffering of his people. That God will use that to accomplish his end and to praise of his name. Now think about our friends in Nepal. Some of you who have been to Nepal uh, the last two years recognize that our friends in Nepal are not rich, are they? They are very poor. They're not wealthy in a lot of things. They're not wealthy in resources and books and teachings. They don't have access to seminaries like we do. But they're rich in Christ, aren't they? I mean, you could all credit this if you've been to Nepal. They're rich in Christ, and they're rich in the gospel. They're very rich. That's all that matters. They're being afflicted. They're in a nation that's 80-plus percent Hindu who do not want them to exist. Their government does not want them to exist, but yet they exist, and they grow, and they proclaim Christ. Christ will give them the crown of life. Whatever government may do to them, they will not be hurt by the second death. Again, if we're faithful unto death, Christ will give us what? Eternal life. It's so interesting, this pursuit of wealth and materialism and accomplishments. And Christ is saying, all you have to do is be faithful to me. Be faithful to me. And I will do what I want to do through you. Because I am sovereign over everything. Be faithful to me even unto death. And I will do what? I will give you life. I will give you eternal life. He assures us in his sovereignty. The, th the third thing is the church may abandon Christ's teaching. The church may abandon Christ's teaching. This is kind of the mainline Protestant problem. They abandon teaching. They abandon, fault. They abandon pr proper teaching or Christ's teaching. So he talks to this church in Pergam Pergamum. And this, um, this church... Um, well, first off, it, again, Christ kind of introduces this letter with an attribute about himself. Christ is a threatening judge, a false judge. We see this, the one who has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He is presented as the warrior judge to this church. The church in Pergamum has held fast to Christ under persecution, right? They're dwelling near the throne of Satan. What does that mean? In Pergamum and a city... Uh, cultic or emperor worship was very much a part of the culture. The first temple built to the emperor was built in Pergamum. They also had a very large area of temples to Zeus and the other pagan Roman gods. They literally dwelled in the heart of paganism and cultic worship. This is a, the throne of Satan that Jesus is referring to here. Emperor worship, it was a center of cultic worship in the region. And temptation was very strong to join for political reasons, cultural reasons, and economic reasons in these festivals and in these worship. There is actually, uh, I don't know if Robert knew this. I don't know if we told him this. But uh, we found out the second year we went to Nepal that there was a, a, a couple that we actually went to their apartment. And they, they sang some music. We met with them and prayed with them. Well, they weren't involved anymore, and we were like, wonder what's going on. We found out that they were basically kicked out of the, the ministry because they would partake in pagan or idol worship. They were partaking in the festivals. And then what they had basically made the decision was, oh, it didn't matter because they're just doing this for cultural reasons. But for Christians, especially in Nepal, the importance of being different than the Hindus is very strong, right? And so they, the, 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 the ministry, Global Mission of Paul, like, rebuked them for their actions and removed them. And they didn't repent from it. This church in, in, uh, in Pergamum was tolerating false teaching. And Jesus refers to this false teaching with a story from the Old Testament of Balaam. Balaam uh, was this... I don't know, like a witch, uh, like a, a warlock or a prophet. It wasn't a godly prophet. And Balak was the king of Moab. And, and so Moab wanted, uh, wanted this Balaam to curse Israel. And so the angel of the Lord, when the donkey was speaking to him, right? If you remember this from Numbers 22, and the donkey was speaking to Balaam not to threaten or curse the people of Israel, to speak a word against God's people. There was an angel of the Lord, right, with a sword at its face. 
we get this imagery of an angel with a sword at his face saying, you better listen or I'm going to cut you down. This is, this is the, Jesus refers back to this talking about himself as also this sword to his churches if they, are to, if they listen or fall for false teaching. And we, about, and we know what the story in Israel uh, in Numbers 25 that um, they ended up falling into Baal worship. They were whoring after the daughters of Moab. They took part in idol worship and sacrifices. And what happened to them? God cut them down with the sword. Thousands died because of their sin. That's the context that, this, that Jesus is writing to this church and saying, pay attention to what I'm saying. Do not listen to false teaching. It will lead to sin and you will be cut down. And he even uses that sword illustration to, to talk about himself, that he is the one with the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. They are So the temptation going on in the church of Pergamum was the cultic worship was such a temptation. Why? Because to be a part of these economic guilds, to be a part of a, to be a merchant, to have make any money with your business, you had to socialize in these pagan worship. So you would go to these pagan worship festivals and eat the food and actually partaking in the worship of false gods. And a part of that, those festivals were uh, temple prostitutes. We're all a part of their festivals. And so Christians would be, a part, would be a part of these festivals. Why? Because they wanted to be look right culturally. They wanted to look right politically. And they wanted to look right economically so they can make money and survive. So they're very tempted to fall under these false teachings. That it's okay. Compromise. You're not really worshiping these idols. You're not really doing this out of a heart or devotion to them. You truly believe in Jesus. Just do what you do for, so you can survive, so you can make your money, so you can do your business. So you can be perceived as a, as a fellow citizen of the town or city. But they, they're compromising with the world brings them under rebuke by Christ. They're commanded by the great judge to repent. I am coming to you soon, and I will go to war against you. A war against you. It's a pretty strong language. The one that we see in, in, in Revelations 1, 12 through 16, the one with the sword coming out of his mouth, you probably don't want to go to war with that guy. So you want to respond in repentance. If the church responds to the Christ warning, she will receive a new status and an invitation to his feast. Right? He talks about the the hidden manna. He's talking about the, the wedding feast of Christ, being in his house, being in his, in his presence, and, and be having the status of a child of God, a, the bride of Christ. To be seated at the table with Christ is the promise here. If they repent of the sin, if they don't tolerate false teaching anymore. The fourth church is very similar to Pergamum, but maybe a, a, a little bit worse. Thyatira is this other church here, and they've abandoned Christ's rule. And I've kind of called this the non-denominational problem. The non-denominational problem. Where liberal mainline Protestant churches typically just run away from Christ's teaching, the non-denominational churches typically run away from Christ's rule, right? They, they basically say, yeah, the church is a, it's a, it's a, it's a place for sinners. Who cares what you do? As long as you come and you love Jesus and you worship Christ, nothing else will really matter. Well, this is what this church is doing. They are living their life on the side, totally opposed to Christ's holiness and rule. This church, Jesus is introduced here in this, in this particular letter as the Son of God, who sees all and possesses great strength, right? His eyes of flaming fire, his feet of bronze. This is how he's presented to this church. Referring back to Psalms chapter 2, where God says, my anointed, my son of God, I will give him all the nations. I will give him complete rule. I will give him a scepter. The son who comes in power and might, who sees all and is holy. He is worthy. He is a worthy king. He is a ruler, worthy ruler. He is a powerful ruler. But he's worthy. He's holy. He's good. And so he says to the church, he encourages the church, he says, You've remained faithful to me. You've been faithful to me under persecution. You've remained faithful. But they have tolerated sin 
in the body. They've tolerated, they've allowed this sin to be in the body. They've given space to false teachings. This Jezebel, this prophetess, this false teacher is teaching something that saying that they can live their lives and, and basically uh, sleep with whoever they want. They can go to the temple and, 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 and sleep with the, with the prostitutes up there. They can eat the, fest- the food from the festivals. They can take part in this worship. Again, going back to what I was saying with, with, with Pergamum, these people were, were, this is the way that they thought, if they, if they took part in these festivals, then maybe they could do business. They can have business interactions. They can be a part of these important economic guilds that were going on in the city. But, but this false teacher, this, this woman has led them, some of them into sin, seduced them to commit sin. They've tolerated it. They've passively allowed it. The elders and the deacons and the, and the church members have allowed this woman to cheat false teachings to then tell them they can sin on the side and no one cares. They're like, whatever. Whatever. They've tolerated it. They've passively allowed it. Like I said, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a hangout for sinners. It's not a hangout. It's not the, the thing, well, you know, it's a comfy couch. Just come and you'll be comfortable in the church. That's not right. That's not biblical. That's not, that's basically saying that you're the own ruler and you can rule your life any way you want. Christ is the ruler. He is the king. Christ is the ruler of the church. His body must not passively and carelessly allow sin. His body should pursue holiness. If you remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what was the issue in the church of Corinth? They allowed someone in their church to sleep with their father's wife. And the church didn't care. They let it happen. They tolerated it. They passively let it happen. This is Jesus' same remark to the church in Theratera. It's that you've allowed this sin to happen and you don't even care. He calls them to repent. He calls them to remove the sin from their midst. To pursue holiness. To pursue a church that understands that Christ is the, the ruler and the king and we should live a life in honor of his rule and his kingship. If the church responds to Christ's warning, she will be given authority and a path to glory. The interesting thing that never happens, it happens very little in the church today, is church discipline, right? What is church discipline? It's when people have committed sin and habitual sin and they're called to repentance. If they don't repent, they're put before the church. If they don't repent to the church, they are removed from the church. Right? They removed the church, sent out, right? basically cast out into with Satan, and basically hoping that they'll recognize their sin and come back to Christ, right? And come back to the church, to be reconciled <laughs> to the church. This woman was called to her sin, didn't repent, and yet was allowed to continue to do what she did. And we should never, we should be serious about sin. We should talk about our sin. We should repent of our sin together and to one another, to Christ, and not tolerate sin and not be passive to sin. And this is what Jesus has issues with this church. Um, I want to end with a kind of a letter to us. If Jesus were going to write a letter to Redeemer, what would he say? And uh, the reason why I said earlier about Ephesus, I think there's some similar issues with this church that Ephesus had. I think Jesus would start off saying that you're faithful to my word. I think that's true here. I think we're faithful to God's word. We do the best that we can to be faithful to his word, to teach his word, to sing his word, to pray his word, to encourage you through his word, to disciple you through the word. I think we're dedicated to being a healthy church. I think we, we want to have healthy leadership. I think we want to have healthy, healthy membership here. I think that's, that's something that we take very seriously. We talk about it often. I think we stand strong in the midst of, of attacks. I think if anything ever happened in a city where we were put under persecution, I think our church would stand strong. I think we would persevere. I think we, we feel very strongly about Christ. We think very, feel very strongly about his word. And I feel like we would stand strong. And we would uh, do what we would always be faithful to God's word. But I think he would have this against us. 
And while I say this, remember that he really, since I'm the pastor, he's really speaking directly to me and also to you, right? So when I say this, I'm not saying this to you and not speaking to myself, right? This is spoken to us as a church. I think our witness is poor. I think our witness is poor. I think sometimes we forget the gospel too often. I think we worry so much about theology and teaching and doctrine that we forget about the gospel. I think our witness is poor. I don't think we make gospel the God Christ known to our city and to our community as well as we should. That's a criticism. That's a criticism on me and a criticism on Robert and Denton and us as a church. I think we are poor in our witness. I think we should respond and move to being more faithful to making Christ's name known. But I think our witness is poor. I think our encouragement to each other is poor. I think we are a criticism first church and not an encouragement first. I don't mean that as a way that we're, there is no encouragement here. I think we struggle to show encouragement to each other. I think I struggle to show encouragement to you. And I think you struggle to show encouragement not only to the pastors, but to each other. I think that is a, a, one of the consequences of forgetting the gospel sometimes is that we don't encourage each other. We don't love each other well. We don't speak love to each other well. I think we're too, too concerned with internal matters. I think we're too concerned with internal matters. And that doesn't mean internal matters aren't important. It doesn't mean that being a healthy church is, is not important. It doesn't mean that doctrine is not important. All those things are important. But I think at times we focus so much on doing things right here that we forget about the lost around us. Okay, That's kind of my... And I think we need to repent of that. I think we need to repent of that. I think we need to be more encouraging to each other, and I think we need to love those that are lost more than we do. And if you hear these words, and you're like, I totally disagree with you, Matt. No way. I think you're missing the point here. I think you're missing the point here. I think God has done amazing things in this church. I think he has been very faithful to us. I think we have been faithful to him as well. But I think at times we have struggled to show love to each other, and I think we've struggled to show love to the lost. And I think we need to repent of that. I think we need to confess that. And so that's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to pray through a time of confession for our church. And then we're going to do our benediction, and then we're going to be dismissed. So if you, do, if you would pray with me, and pray with me. Dear Lord, we come and we... Listen to these teachings that you give us, and we recognize that you are speaking to us as well. You're not just speaking to the church in Ephesus. You're not just speaking to the church in Smyrna. You're, teach, you're talking to us as well. And you, Lord, are encouraging us. You're encouraging us where we, Lord, are. We love your word. Lord, we love uh, to, to, to read your word and hear your word. We love to discuss your word. Lord, we just, we, 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 we want to be a faithful church. We want to do things right here. But Lord, I think at times, Lord, we, like the church in Ephesus, forget the gospel. I think we struggle to show encouragement to each other at times. I think we struggle to love each other at times. Maybe it's because we're just so busy. Maybe it's because we are just doing life and it's hard to stop, Lord, you would help us to remember the gospel, and that would spur us to love and encourage each other. But also, Lord, that as your word says, that we are light to the world, like we are the lampstand, and, and you're the, the lampstand, is, and we are the light, Lord, that is made known to the world, and that draws people to you, that you are known by our love for each other and our proclamation of the gospel, Lord, and help us to proclaim the gospel. Lord, help us to respond well to this criticism. Lord, and, to, and to, to, to effectively witness to the world and to our community the gospel of Christ Jesus. Lord, help us where we have failed. Help us where we are lacking. And help us, Lord, to be faithful to you. Faithful to your word. Faithful, Lord, 